And as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I was thinking of a previous church where a sister had a favorite Bible verse. And the Bible verse that she called her favorite was from Psalms 139, verses 23 and 24. It goes like this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. She used this verse very often as she would open her prayers to God. And I talked with her and I said, this seems like a very scary verse because as you open this, you're asking God to come in inside of you, check out everything that's there, and make changes where he sees that you need to make changes. And this is the way she would answer. She said, all the time when my life is very smooth and everything is nice and my spirit seems to be asleep, I ask God to send some trouble into my life because through troubles, I will be closer to God. It's an odd thing to ask for. But she would also say, as these troubles come and as my work increases in the church, my spirits then are raised up. I invite you as we study the church of Laodicea today to come with me and to renew your acquaintance again with the Savior if we were to compare the seven churches of Revelation with the seven corresponding eras of the Christian church, we find that the church of Laodicea is what speaks to us today. It is the prophetical era or epoch in which we find our church today. And so it should come as no surprise then that as many of us are studying this letter, it becomes old and stale. Yet the words are very familiar to us. If we start to read that text, we all know this text. We all can repeat and finish the scripture that was read this morning without having to even look it up in our Bibles. And of course, who hasn't heard that famous appeal, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And it seems like this is used in every evangelistic service you've ever gone to. In fact, as you read the passage now, your attention probably drifted off because you've heard it so many times. But yet as we read the letter to Laodicea, we discover that the spirit of the churches is calling to us this morning and calling us to recite the message from memory and to do more than just repeat the catchphrases that we have gleaned. This morning, the Spirit of God is calling us to not let the words go in one ear and come out the other. But it's talking that we lay aside what we think this letter is saying to wake up our spiritual sensitivities and to tune in to what the Word of God is actually declaring to us today. We begin this letter as we began so many other of the churches with, I know your works. So often with any letter that we write, that first 
sentence is what sets the tone of the letter and of the message being given. Those first words reveal what's on the author's heart and what they want to say. And what is God primarily concerned with? He's concerned with our works. Of all the ways God could have begun this letter, of all of the things he could have expressed, he takes greatest issue with his church. We discover that it is our works, what we are doing, that are of utmost importance to him. In fact, when you look over the letters to the churches, five of the seven churches actually begin with the words, I know your works. This is a sobering testimony, and it stands in stark contrast to the mindset of many Christians that we have today. Because to many Christians, we're living in the age of grace. It is the herald of many contemporary churches. Our works are no longer important. Just confess that the Lord Jesus is Christ, and you are saved. The commonly accepted theory for too many Christians is once saved, always saved. And it has wrecked havoc on the cause of Christ. They will tell you that to make a profession of faith is enough. That to be baptized is sufficient. And the always saved subscribers, the good works, do more, do no more to merit the kingdom of heaven than the evil works do to keep you out. I have known many people who have said, it doesn't matter what I do. If I go to church on Sabbath, if I go to church on Sunday, if I smoke, if I drink, whatever I do, it doesn't matter because I am still saved and I accept Jesus as my Savior. But yet as we study the message to God's churches, we discover that the works of his professed followers are of great significance in his eyes. Make no mistake about it, we are we do what we do is absolutely important as far as god is concerned we are told that our works do not just make a difference to god our works are the difference now i can imagine that some of you are saying this sounds legalistic it sounds like that i'm saying that our works are what save us but understand this point very carefully that's not what i am saying at all Nowhere in Scripture are we told that we are to work for our salvation. The only work that was needed for our salvation was accomplished 2,000 years ago on Calvary by someone far more capable than you or I. So follow us closely as we talk about this. Our works do not save us. You could never do enough to earn salvation, and to even attempt to do so is to render the cross useless. So why place such an emphasis then on works? And the answer to that question is found in the next statement God makes to Laodicea. I know your works, he says, and it is your works that reveal the truth of your situation. You are neither hot nor cold, is his declaration. He knows this because he knows that the, what the church is up to. He has watched the church at Laodicea operate. He's come to the conclusion that the church needs help. Now he is judging the church. But how is he judging the church? 
He merely sees what they are doing and is making a statement based on what he sees is going on. And of course, the Word of God tells us that what is going on in our lives can reveal a lot about what is going on in the heart. The works that the Laodicean Christians were involved in reveal a great deal about the state of their hearts. In, far, in fact, as God took stock of Laodicea, what he witnessed caused his stomach to sour. You see, Laodicea had become what we call a lukewarm church. A few weeks ago, we talked about the frozen chosen. Today, we meet the church of the bathtub believers. In a bathtub, you don't want the water too hot and you don't want it too cold, just warm enough to sit comfortably. Like someone taking a lazy soak in a warm tub, Laodicea has become apathetic and lethargic. The church was content with the title of Christian, was good at making a profession of faith, but had failed desperately to do anything with what they had professed. This, we are told, is unacceptable to God. The message of Laodicea tells us today that a profession of faith in Jesus Christ without an accompanying lifestyle is not only intolerable to him, it's repulsive. And in the same way that the body expels that which it cannot tolerate, the purging of the stomach of which it does not agree, we are told God will purge from his body the believer's all whose lives are not lived in accordance with the profession. You see, with God, being a bathtub believer is not an option. In fact, God states in no uncertain terms that he would rather have us hot or absolutely cold. In other words, he would rather see us completely embrace and live the gospel message or have nothing to do with it at all. Why is this, you ask? Do you know that someone who is completely antagonistic towards the gospel gets more credit with God than a bathtub believer? It's true, and here's why. If you're in one camp or the other, God can do something with you. But if you're somewhere in the middle, you're useless to him. It's a known fact that some of the most stalwart Christians in history were those who fought against the gospel most violently. We have one of the prime examples in scripture of Saul of Tarsus, a man who single-handedly wanted to wipe Christianity from the face of the map. But somewhere along the way, he came face to face with Jesus Christ. And once he encountered the amazing grace of God, that same man who fought against the Christian message with every ounce of strength in him went on to use every ounce of strength he had to proclaim the same gospel right up until his very own death. Make no mistake about it, there is no middle ground with God. He wants us all or he'll take none. As we have said, the works are an outward demonstration of the condition of the heart. It is a reflection of the state of your mind. Going on in the letter to Laodicea, God explains in verse 17 exactly what their mindset is. And as we go back to verse 17, let's read what it says there. 
Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Don't miss the significance of what was just said here. A moment ago, we learned that our works are an outward expression of what's going on in our hearts and minds. Laodicea had a problem with lukewarm attitude towards a Christian lifestyle. And here in verse 17, we are told why. When we literally translate the Greek, it would read something like this. You say, I am rich. I have everything. And you can't add anything to what I have. The problem with Laodiceans is that they think they already have everything they need. Now, when we hear the words, I am rich, we often think of material worth, that is, money, possessions. But I believe the wealth being spoken of here is of a far different nature than mere silver and gold. To understand the kind of wealth we are talking about, we need to go to the book of Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 3. Colossians 2, verses 1 through 3. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my faith in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and and of Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It seems here, as we read this message from Paul, that the Colossians church had a lot in common with the church in Laodicea. In fact, we are told in Colossians verse 4.16 that the two churches exchanged the letters that Paul would send to them. It would be safe then to conclude that what we read in Colossians is being applied to Laodicea. And what we read in Colossians chapter 2 is that the wealth they were given is not found in silver or gold, but in the full assurance of understanding and in the wisdom and knowledge. In other words, they were blessed with the great spiritual understanding and insight. Now with this in mind, we go back and we look again at Revelation 3.17 and we see what that passage is trying to say. If we understand the wealth that is being spoken of here, it is to mean spiritual wisdom and knowledge. Then what Laodicea is saying is that they think they have it all. They know everything there is to know. They think they've got it all figured out, and in the realm of spiritual truth and sound doctrine, they've cornered the market. More than an attitude of material satisfaction, the church of Laodicea has fallen into a state of spiritual arrogance. They've been blessed with the great insights of the Word of God. They hold the true doctrines. They obey all of God's commandments. They consider themselves better and more acceptable to God than anyone around them, and more spiritual than those other churches who do not have such understandings. What's more, they begin to think they've reached a state of complete 
understanding. They've become spiritual know-it-alls, as it were. And because of this, we are told they have been blinded to how ignorant of things of God they really are. We look at this kind of like the old fairy tale about the king who wore fancy clothes all the time. And the story goes that two swindlers came to town and said they would make the king clothes that only people of noble stature could even see. And so they went and they wove all night long. And they came to the king with the cloth and they showed them cutting out the cloth and they said, look how beautiful this is. A noble person will be able to see the colors and be able to see everything that's here. And of course, the king couldn't admit he couldn't see anything. He was of noble birth, right? So he said, oh, I can see the colors. I know everything. And they helped him to put on the clothes. And then he went outside. And as he's marching down the street, a little child said, the king has no clothes. And all the parents said, hush, hush, we can see the clothes. We know we're all nobles. We can see the clothes. And in fact, that's what we see here with the church at Laodicea. We have the righteousness. We have everything we need. And we don't see we're naked, blind, wretched. So when we look at this condition how does a church get to such a place? How do Christians have such a knowledge of the scriptures and not see their true condition? And this is where I think the answer comes to us in verse 20. In verse 20, it talks about Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And as we said earlier, this is an, a verse that we use a lot of times as an appeal in evangelistic services saying, look, Christ is at the door of your heart knocking. But I think too often we've kind of missed two things with this story here, and I want to bring them out today. Two very important things. The first thing we miss about this appeal is, who is Jesus talking to in this verse? Is he talking to the world? He's talking to the church, not to the world. He's standing at the door of the heart of the church and knocking to come in. Not to unbelievers, but to those who profess to be followers of Jesus. This is an appeal that Jesus is making to you and to me. Understand that Jesus is speaking to his church. The second thing we miss, and I believe this is the most important of the two, is where is Jesus standing when he makes this appeal? He's standing outside the door. Jesus has been kicked out of his own church. And he's waiting to be let back in. Brothers and sisters, the problem with the church in Laodicea is that they've become so absorbed in having the knowledge of Jesus that they have ended up pushing Jesus right out the front door. The church was so obsessed with the knowledge of salvation that they had that Having the knowledge took the place of having the Savior in our lives. They have become so arrogant about the fact that we are keeping the exact image and everything about God's law that the law took the place of the great lawgiver. Self has taken the throne of the heart in their lives. 
No longer about knowing Jesus personally, but knowing a lot about him and comparing how much they know with others that do not know. They have become self-righteous because they claim to know so much, little realizing that the righteous one is no longer in their lives. And the more we push him away, the less clearly we are able to see our own true condition. The more we deny our ignorance, blindness, nakedness, and our shamefulness. But yet, through it all, praise God, he is still there. This letter, difficult though it is to read to us today, is still filled with hope and promise. There are many who have said that Jesus despised this church. But that's not true. We read in Revelation 3.19 that despite our ignorance, despite our arrogance, despite the stern rebuke and the severe warning to his professed followers, it is the banner of his love that overshadows all. As our pastor likes to say, Auntie Ellen writes, I testify to my brethren and sisters that the church of Christ enfeebled and defective though it may be, is the only object on earth with which he bestows his supreme regard. That same love that drove him to Calvary 2,000 years ago is pleading with us today. The same mouth that speaks in rebuke is there to speak words of comfort. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be Swift and beautiful for thee, swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Always only for my King. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be Ever only all for thee, ever only all for thee.
bow our heads. Father God, we ask that you come into us, as it says in James 2.26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. We open our hearts to you today. Amen.